Many of you know Father Cliff is on sabbatical right now, and so from time to time we'll have um, outside preachers come in, and we're excited to have David Taylor with us, Father David, uh, this morning. Many of you know David Taylor. Uh, He's lived in Austin for a long time. If you don't, let me share with you just a little bit. His um, CV is rather long, so here's just a couple of highlights of things that I really admire about this man. Um, He is a priest, and actually, David, you remember this. We were ordained the same day, me as a deacon, you as a priest, up in Plano, Texas, uh, back in 2017. Uh, He's a professor of theology at Fuller, and uh, many of you uh, know that. Some of you have even had classes with him at Fuller Seminary, thinking about how does um, God and the love of God interact with culture. So you might have encountered him there. He's also a um, lover of the arts and helps to think about what does it mean to love the arts as a Christian and what does beauty have to say about who God is and how we live this world? In our own diocese, he helps in engaging culture and even thinking. Can you imagine this? Helping priests and deacons think about how they might engage on social media. He helps us think about that as if people needed help doing that. Uh, but he helps in, in that regard. He's written books on praying the Psalms and um, in, even with illustrations from his wife, Phaedra. By the way, his wife, Phaedra, uh, some of you might know this, is the artist who um, produced this work, our altarpiece work, that we'll get to interact with in just a couple of weeks on Pentecost. The thing I'd love to say most about David, though, is um, there's, there can be a tendency amongst scholars to live in the ivory tower and to say, let me just think a lot about God, but how that actually translates into loving God for the average person in the pew, so to speak, I'm sort of indifferent to that. I just want to think bigly about God. One of the things that I most admire about David is um, his deepest concern is how does the love of God with our mind translate in the love of God in our hearts and hands? Um, I think he's especially gifted in that regard. So David, if you would come forward, let me pray for you. We're excited to have you here this morning. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, would you, through the preparation of David the man, all you've made him to be, his study this week, would you speak your words through him, and then would our hearts be tender soil to receive your word, to grow, to mature, to become more and more reflecting the image of Christ, that 2 Corinthians 3 unveiled face reality we're all stepping forward to. Thank you, Lord. We anticipate to hear from you this morning. Amen. Good to be with you. Can you hear me? Yes. Good. Excellent. In the spring of 1996, I took a course in seminary at Regent College on the book of Romans with the somewhat renowned New Testament scholar Gordon Fee. We were halfway through the term and thus halfway through Paul's most famous letter, which means that we had arrived at chapter 8 where the Holy Spirit language saturates the page. My mind began gnawing on a question, so I raised my hand. Dr. V, I asked, I'm 23, what was the Roman Christian community's doctrine of the Spirit? I mean, what kind of theology of of the third person of the Trinity were they working with? And Gordon Fee looked out at me with a combination of surprise and pity, and he said in his typically impassioned voice, David, they didn't have a doctrine of the Spirit. They had experienced the Spirit, and then we're trying to figure out what that meant. It was experience first, then doctrine. And I kid you not, that's how he talks. (laughs) 
as an INTJ on the Myers-Briggs and a five in the Enneagram, which is to say as somebody who likes to think his way through life, his answer derailed me. As a Bible church kid, I had grown up with, at best, a vague idea of the Holy Spirit, at worst, with an assumption that the Spirit merely did pickup work. Jesus died and rose and dealt with sin, and the Spirit simply made sure that it stuck. Jesus did the superhero work, and the Holy Spirit was the butler, coming along invisibly. As a seminary student at the time, the Spirit for me was an idea to figure out, not a divine person to experience. But if our passage today from John 14 is to be believed, which I believe it should be, there is no Christian life without the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells the disciples that he will give them a second helper to be with them forever. Now, a second helper, of course, presumes a first helper, which in this case is, in fact, Jesus. But the Father is also a helper, an ever-present helper, as Psalm 46 reminds us. Now, what kind of help exactly does the Holy Spirit provide? Quite simply, all of it. You can't know God truly without the Holy Spirit. It's metaphysically impossible, as I tell my students at Fuller. You can't fully experience Jesus' salvific work. You can't know yourself, not really. And you can't wholly love your neighbor. Without the Holy Spirit, you and I are helpless. But negatively, the Holy Spirit isn't like Gatorade that simply helps you finish the race. Or like Grammarly, that AI software that shows up on YouTube all the time that helps you to spell words good. I mean, right. <laughs> Uh, rightly. Um, the Holy Spirit isn't, that is, a take-it-or-leave-it tool simply to enhance your life. Without the Holy Spirit, it's as if you and I are colorblind. Squeeze and squish your eyeballs all you want. You cannot see color. You and I are helpless. To use John's language from the gospel, apart from the Holy Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God, and you cannot experience everlasting life. You must be born from above, which in John's gospel is shorthand language for Holy Spirit language. But that's impossible, Nicodemus tells Jesus, and Jesus says precisely. Apart from the Holy Spirit, it is impossible. But the Holy Spirit, dear friends, is in the business of doing impossible things. And this morning, I'd like to focus my comments on the way in which the Spirit helps us to live into the grace of Christ's resurrected life. Now, how exactly does the Holy Spirit help us to live into such a grace? First, we experience what it feels for God to make his home with us. Second, we experience a grace for ourselves that we didn't think was possible for us. And third, we experience a grace to love our neighbor who feels impossible to love. So first then, the Holy Spirit helps us to experience being at home with God. In John 14, 23, Jesus tells his disciples that those who love him will obey his commands and that the Father will love them too and that together the Father and the Son will make their home with them. Now, the opposite of feeling at home with God in this case is feeling abandoned by God. Now, this represents a very real fear for the disciples in our passage. They know that things are coming to an end and they fear that they're going to be left alone. Where are you going? Why are you leaving? What's going to happen to us? 
Jesus reassures them by saying, I will not leave you as orphans. I will be with you. As it turns out, Jesus' death is not, in fact, the end of his presence with them. The Holy Spirit, as the whole New Testament reminds us, is the one who will help to make the presence of God more real to us than we could ever imagine possible. In the same way that the Holy Spirit makes himself at home on Jesus at his baptism, as Eugene Peterson translates John 1.32, so too the Holy Spirit helps us to feel God's at-homeness with us. Now this is something that I struggled to believe when I was in my 20s. I remember very clearly sitting in Kyle Miller's office for one of my regularly scheduled counseling sessions. We had come to the end of another session in which we had explored my perfectionistic tendencies. As he sometimes did, he invited me to pray to close our time. After briefly praying, Kyle looked over at me with one of those looks that therapists are famous for, those knowing looks. He said, David, I've noticed something. What's that? I asked. You don't ever pray to the Father. You pray only to Jesus. Really? That's interesting. I never noticed. Do you have any idea why that might be the case? Kyle asked me. I didn't, but the perfectionist in me felt that this was a test and I can do tests. (laughs) Why did I never pray to the Father? A. I'm afraid? Of what might you be afraid, Kyle asked. Another test question. I like this. Of displeasing him? Why might that be so? Because it's never good enough? What's never good enough? Whatever I do? Can you tell me more? Man, I'm totally crushing this test. I, um, I feel hurt by the Father and I don't trust him. Do you trust Jesus? Yeah. The Spirit? Who? (laughs) So you keep your distance from the Father. Yes. Would you like to be different? Yes. Would you like to pray to the Father right now? No. (laughs) Are you angry? Maybe. Would you like to talk about it? No. (laughs) It took me 10 years to become brave enough to ask for help to feel at home with my Father in heaven. The fear of being disappointed by God ran very deep, it seemed. Now, you too may believe that God is too demanding or absent from your life, especially from the parts of your life that feel most painful. Your work may feel unsatisfying. Your mental and physical health may feel depleting. Your marriage may feel strained. Your family life may feel overwhelming. Society certainly around you feels chaotic. Where exactly is this grace that God offers to us in our hour of need? At the end of John's gospel, the disciples appear traumatized and disoriented by everything that they had experienced. So they do the one thing that feels most normal. They go fishing. Jesus, in turn, does the thing that's most normal for God to do. He makes breakfast for them. Come have breakfast, he says to the disciples in John 21, 12. Can I make you some coffee? Yes, thank you. The fish and tacos sound good. Yes, sure. <laughs> Chips and creamy jalapeno. Yes, please. <laughs> you choose your own image of hearth and home. Mine is Chewy's for breakfast. 
and you get the idea. What Jesus offers to his friends, the Holy Spirit offers to you and to me, an experience of God making his home with us as a way for us to experience God's tangible, edible, hospitable grace. Second, a second way that the Holy Spirit helps us to live into the resurrection is by enabling us to experience a grace for ourselves that we didn't think we could experience. John 1.16 says, From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. In God's economy of abundance, there's more grace than we could imagine possible for our very broken selves. To paraphrase John 14.21, The Father and the Son wish to overwhelm us with grace And it is the Holy Spirit who pours out that grace into our hearts. This, again, is something that I have struggled to believe for myself in my life. As a child growing up in Guatemala, I attended a private Austrian school where if you failed a course like science or math or German, you were automatically expelled. By the time we reached high school, only half of the students from my kindergarten had survived the Hunger Games pruning. And the fear of falling or of failing caused me to become driven to be the best. And I became driven not just at school, but in every arena of my life. I wanted to be the best at friendships, sports, church, spirituality. In college, I resented how little I knew compared to my peers at the University of Texas and purposed to work harder than everybody. In seminary, I studied late into the night on Fridays and Saturdays because I felt like I was always behind and needed to catch up. I hated everything I wrote. I always looked for these impossibly ideal friends, and I beat myself up whenever I sinned or made mistakes. I was ruthless with myself. Mistakes were failures. Failures were flaws. Flaws were to be avoided at all costs. And the cost of my perfectionism was the experience of feeling utterly alone. And where nothing I did was good enough because at bottom I didn't believe that there was enough God. I lived in an economy of scarcity. Thankfully God did a deep work of healing in my heart in my 30s, but still. Today I take comfort in what the Swiss theologian Karl Barth once said. He said, even in our sinning, we cannot sin apart from the grace of God. We are forbidden, in fact, he writes, to take sin more seriously than grace. Why? On the grounds that God does not take sin more seriously than grace. So if God takes grace more seriously than sin, so should we. You too, my friends, may struggle with your own internal battles or with being your worst enemy in certain departments of your life. But the grace that Jesus offers to others, he offers to you as well. In John 8, the people do not believe that there is enough grace for the woman caught in adultery, and perhaps she doesn't either. In John 21, Peter doesn't believe that there is enough grace for his failure of denying Jesus in public. But there is, for both, and for you and me as well. Jesus gives us the Spirit in order to help us to experience the grace of God for ourselves in a way that we didn't think possible. But as John the Baptist says in John 3, 34, according to Eugene Peterson's translation in the message, don't think he rations out the Spirit in bits and pieces. The Father loves the Son extravagantly. He turned everything over to him so he could give it away, a lavish distribution of gifts. 
So how much grace is there for you this day, brothers and sisters? Well, think of the biggest number. Andy, what's the biggest number you can think of? No, go ahead. Say it out loud. What's the biggest number? 53. No, come on. (laughs) That's how old you are. That is old. That's a big number. Um, Okay, come on, Andy. What's the biggest number? That is a very, very big number. It's three quintillion something, something, something. Now multiply it times 10, and that's how much grace there is for you. Third, the Spirit helps us to love our irritating and hated neighbors. I love St. Peter because he is the patron saint of screw-ups. In John 13, he is full of himself. In John 18, he is a brute and a coward. And in John 21, he suffers from the disease of whataboutism. What about him? Pointing to John. What's going to happen to him? As a hip-hop group, Salt and Pepper might put it, it's none of your business. (laughs) Jesus tells Peter to quit worrying about things that aren't his business to worry about. And instead, to be about the business of learning how to love well. Which is, of course, easier said than done. I once worked for an organization where the mid-level manager repeatedly threw me under the bus in order to save face with the CEO. My boss never had my back. And he repeatedly took credit for things that I had accomplished. And with no power to change my circumstances, I felt angry all the time. On certain days today, I still find myself hating him, wishing ill for him, a taste of his own medicine. I want him to have public failure. And it feels at times impossible to change how I feel about him. And you too may have your own version of a Peter in your life. There's a guy that gets on your nerves. There's a girl who rubs you the wrong way. There's that Christian on social media who gives Jesus a bad name, or so it feels. There's a colleague who gets away with things, or a family member who thinks selfishly only of himself or herself, or a neighbor who keeps doing stupid things. But Jesus says to you and to me, friends, what he says to his disciples, love one another in the same way that I have loved you. This is, in fact, how outsiders will recognize you as my people. And speaking of outsiders, love your irritating, weird, despised neighbors, too, like the hated but virtuous Samaritan, the way in which he does. For in doing so, you will fulfill the second greatest commandment. But I can't, you think to yourself. And maybe if you're fully honest, you don't want to love that certain person. Or maybe you think, I don't have it in me to love. Okay, all those other people, yes, but not that one. And apart from the Holy Spirit, my friends, you are helpless. It is impossible to love that person But the Holy Spirit is in the business of doing impossible things. And that same grace that enables Jesus to love his disciples to the end, as John 13, 1 puts it, is the same grace that the Spirit gives to us to love our neighbors as hard as it may be to love that specific neighbor. The last time that the Holy Spirit appears in John's gospel is perhaps the most significant of it all. It takes place on the first occasion that the resurrected Jesus meets with the disciples all together. Peace be with you, 
He says to them in John 20, 19, he shows them his wounded hand and side and then says again, peace be with you. Why? Because they're afraid. They're afraid of what's next. They don't know what's going to happen. They're afraid of being left alone. Then Jesus does something completely unexpected. He breathes on them. Receive the Holy Spirit, he says. The same Spirit who brings order out of chaos in Genesis and who breathes new life into dry bones in Ezekiel. That same Spirit, Jesus, breathes on them. It's a tender, care-filled action. And what Jesus does for his disciples here in anticipation of the full gift of Pentecost Jesus offers to us today a fresh experience of the Holy Spirit. So as we think about what it means to live in light of Jesus' resurrection, allow me to encourage you to consider two things here at the end. First, I want to warmly, heartfelt encourage you to welcome the Holy Spirit into parts of your life that feel dry and dead and scary and hard. I encourage you to pray even now as we go through the rest of the liturgy. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Ask the Spirit to help give you a fresh experience of God's grace today. And second, I encourage you to welcome the help of your brothers and sisters in this community right here. For it isn't just that the Spirit gives us an immediate experience of God's grace. It's that the Spirit chooses to use and to work through you and you and you and your priests and your deacon, not despite or beyond these brothers and sisters to make the grace of God real in our lives. So consider then what person here you might reach out to today or in the coming week. Share with them a place in your life where you feel helpless. Invite them to pray that you might experience the Spirit as your helper to do what may feel impossible to you, but that is wholly possible for the God who raised Jesus from the dead and who promises to us today grace upon grace upon grace and then some. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.